0: Welcome to the newest episode of Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. I'm your host, Jason Fraley, picking the brains of the top filmmakers, musicians, and artists of our time. Today marks 20 years since HBO's The Wire premiered on June 2nd, 2002, becoming one of the greatest TV dramas of all time. I spoke to The Wire creator David Simon at the inaugural Double Exposure Investigative Film Festival at the Smithsonian's National Portrait Gallery in 2015. Simon's crime reporting for The Baltimore Sun inspired NBC's homicide life on the street and season five of The Wire, so he was the perfect choice to moderate the festival's opening night Q&A for Spotlight, which would go on to win the Oscar for Best Picture. I'm here with David Simon, the creator of The Wire and Q&A conductor here for Spotlight here, which was, I, I gotta say, I was sitting here in the theater here and just blown away and i'm right i'm right there with you when you were saying during the the q and q a when when you're yelling out cut to black cut the black as the phones are going off um, I, I shared that sentiment entirely what was it like sitting here watching this as a filmmaker
1: calling for it to cut the black Well, i mean i saw the film uh, a couple nights ago and i was calling then so I, mean, I actually didn't see the end of it here but uh, but having said that um I just thought like it was a very brave film, uh, in the sense of the story does tell itself uh, as it gets going, and it's it's entirely worthy of the of the time and the effort spent to tell it. But it's the kind of film that doesn't get told enough because it lacks all the things that the entertainment industry thinks is currency. Uh, it's, there's not a lot of sex in it. There's not a lot of violence. Um, Lots of paper. Th- <laughs> but there's a lot of paper, and there's a lot of ideas, and there's a lot of there's a lot of humanity. Um, and the actual stakes of something that we're all uh, we all should be vested in uh, as a society is laid bare, and um, it's just like films don't get made because they have this currency and not the other crap. And so to see it uh, executed as well as it was, uh, and, to, and to be up there with the filmmakers and with, and with the subjects of the film, it, um, just. You know, delighted it got me. and was happy to happy to be able to um, exhibit it tonight.
0: Absolutely, and um, a, a big point you made here that I thought was a crucial point that you made, and a, and a crucial point of the movie too, is the idea of of how the journalist could have stopped, but the editor saying, "Hold on, it," and, and there's there's a bigger fish to fry. There's a bigger fish yeah. to fry. And in a way, in a way, the wire was like that too. I mean, you start on a lower level and we're, and you expose it out. We're,
1: but, but we're in entertainment, and and, right. and that's our job is to is to is to be playing for the last 20 minutes of film. You know, you're making a film. You want the whole thing to hold together. Uh, journalism doesn't always get those opportunities. Sometimes the story has to go. Sometimes you go on on less than perfect um, information. Um, you try to get it right. You try never to get it wrong. But you may get it incomplete. It's the first draft of whatever you're trying to explain to people. But I guess my um, question is more the in,
0: like the courage of a screenwriter and the skill it takes to craft something where it's it's rather than a small sliver, but that you're tackling the institutionalized corruption. Or something.
1: It's just uh, it's a different target. You need more time. Uh, it has to be long form. In the same way, I guess to, to follow your analogy, that this was long form journalism. This was uh, a long term investigative project by uh, by a group of reporters. Um, I very much admired the restraint and the care that they showed uh, and the, de- the delicacy of reporting. Uh, reporting to me was, uh, as Mencken said, it was the life of kings uh, when it was done well and um, uh, it's, uh, it, may not have, it may not have always ended as well and not every story was uh, gold and, and sometimes you wasted your time and sometimes you spun your wheels, but it was never uh, not fun and it never felt <laughs> Uh, purposeless, yeah. uh, in the way that sometimes being in the entertainment industry is. Uh, like I said, you know, watching it, it was it was kind of like porn for me. <laughs> it was nostalgic porn.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and uh, we'll just wrap up. So knew, sure. you know, but the final one, um, t- I just want to talk to you from, you know, I, I did some time up at the Sun. And what years uh, were you there?
1: Uh, I was there uh, 1982. I started as a stringer in '82, and I was there to '95. Gotcha. So just speak to that a little bit in terms
0: of why we need more papers like this to devote resources for long-form investigations and sort of what you were mentioning on the stage in terms of what the internet age maybe made us rush to judgment on certain stories. The
1: the amateurs can't do this. There's a lot that the internet can do. Uh, The immediacy of of uh, real-time reaction and what the internet can provide. there's certain things that, 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 that ordinary people can achieve uh, and can cover certain things uh, in a very um, immediate and basic way. But what you just watched was journalism that can never be the amateur hour. It has to be professionals. It has to be people who devote their lives to it, uh, who look upon it as a career, who expect there to be a paycheck, not, maybe not the best paycheck you can make for that skill set, but, right. but certainly enough that you can send your kid to school and pay your mortgage and have a life. Doing the same thing every day, coming back to work every day, and you know, and and, and beating the hell out of a story, um, and uh, it has to be professional. And you know, at the at the paper I was at, there's 120 people where there used to be 500, and that dynamic, you know, the Baltimore, the Baltimore metro area isn't is the same size. The problems are the same size or bigger, um, but uh, the number of people devoted to it is. Uh, is much less, and until they figure out the revenue stream, society is going to suffer. Absolutely.
0: Sure. Well, thanks for taking the yeah. time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. I spoke to Simon again at the 2017 Maryland Film Festival during the grand reopening of the Parkway Theater in Baltimore. We actually spoke uh, down at the uh, at the Spotlight screening at the premiere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was afterwards. Um, I guess before we dive into all this, um, let's 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 uh, do a post mortem on that. So it, that went on to win Best Picture. Yeah, it did
1: pretty well for itself. But
0: but then here we are a year later, and now everyone's talking fake news, and then journalism is coming back and holding people accountable now. So where do you sort of stand post Spotlight? <laughs>
1: Um, certainly, if you were uh, a journalist and you were having an existential crisis um, over the revenue stream and, and over all the losses that journalism had suffered, um, this last election cycle has proved your, the need for you. Now whether or not that translates into a revenue stream is still a long, hard fight, because the problems are still the problems in terms of uh, the product and, and, and where the money comes from now with the internet. but. Uh, it's pretty apparent that the amateur hour won't work, right. that, that, that the uh, unaccredited, I'll say what I want and you figure out whether it's true or not version of, uh, of, the, of the online uh, uh, news element is, um, is flawed yeah. and that you actually need news organizations, you need people accredited, you need people accountable, uh, you, need, you need the work to be sourced. And uh, all the people who said we were going to, it was going to be the amateur hour and everyone was going to be a citizen journalist, they kind of look like jerks right now. Uh, and Or they look like jerks or Russian bots, one of the two. (laughs) Awesome. Well, let's dive into the reason we're
0: actually here. Talk about, um, before we get into the festival itself, but just... The fact that this theater's back here—I think I heard you talking with John Waters. He's, did I hear him say that he was—he saw Psycho
1: down the street? Or do you yeah. ever remember coming up here? I know, I mean, you're from DC. No, D. you got remember, not to remember—not to—not to that extent, because to me, I grew up in, in DC. The Silver Theater, which is now AFI, um, was my local theater. Uh, so, no. I, if you wanted to see stuff on a big screen when I was a kid, you went to the Uptown in DC. This—I got here in '83, so. You want to talk to somebody about what what was around here filming? You know, talk to talk to Barry, talk to, to John. I, uh, you know, my but
0: just in general, as I mean, it's still as a generally local guy growing up around here. I mean, and obviously your your, movie, your shows are set up here, Wire and Homicidal and stuff. Um, just
1: what does it mean to
2: have
0: an old historic theater back open in Baltimore?
1: Oh, and this as a venue, this is this is excellent because first of all, this area is sort of the home base of the film festival and has been for years now. Uh, this is an incredibly valuable property for uh, as a venue just for independent filmmakers and and for um, young filmmakers. To get their work shown, I mean, it's hard to get into theaters. And art houses are essential for that. Baltimore just acquired a top flight art house here. Not to mention it's a venue for educational stuff, for training crew, uh, for getting people engaged in an industry that, let's face it, it's one of the few growth industries uh, left in this country and um, jobs matter and this is a clean industry so I'm elated that uh, uh, Jed and the producers club and the film festival they all brought it through um, it's really been uh, it's been a long haul for them and I'm very proud of you
0: mentioned you mentioned local filmmakers and it's hard for them to get their work seen i um, what what advice do you have for them? If if there's any of our listeners that are maybe aspiring filmmakers or local film students or whatever, you know, what's the most common mistake you see them make, and how can they actually break through being an East Coast filmmaker?
1: You know, I'm a terrible person to ask for that <laughs> because my path to being a, a television writer and, and producer was really improbable. It came off of a off of prose work that I did that was that Barry Levinson bought. And uh, and and I and then they filmed it in my town and, and I learned how to do it through a back door really I, you know I didn't go to film school I didn't know which end of the camera was which to begin with so I'm really a terrible person like if, you know when people come to me and say how do I get into the movie business I'm like if I ever figure it out I'll let <laughs> you know but um, I'm not being flippant I, but uh, I would say one of the things is just to do it. Um, uh, there is so much now in terms of video. There's less that's required now, technically and in terms of equipment, to go out and to tell a film narrative. Certainly to, to, to create your first short or something and to get on the, you know, to try to get onto the uh, festival circuit. Um, it used to be you had to, you needed a dark room, you needed to cut film, you needed to um, videotape and, uh, and, uh, um, the digital uh, abilities that, that come with that have really made it possible for people to, to dive in, and you know that you can do the stuff you can do on a laptop now is extraordinary.
0: Final question: um, Got to ask you about the Wire, How, what, arguably my favorite show of all time. How did you guys? How are you able to create so many... I mean, there's probably two dozen characters that all get equal screen time that they're just lodged in our brains, like, decades later. I mean, what what's the secret to, to giving them the right amount of time but also be able to build those arcs? I mean, there's so many great characters. I don't
1: know. I don't know. Um, it, it, I don't know why it has resonance. It, honestly, it's not even the most... Um, I'm proud of it. it. It turned out very well, I think. But it wasn't even the most... Um, uh, or how should I say it? In terms of uh, execution, there are other things I've done where I thought it were turned out much more. Percussive. Which were which were some of film. those things? Um, I thought uh, Generation Kill uh, was uh, turns term, out in terms of execution. Um, but I guess the wire went on for sixty hours, and people became accustomed to the world and the characters, and and it, and it found some zeitgeist. But uh, um, I don't know. You know, it's. We did the best we could. We always do the best we can.
0: Well, keep doing the best you can. Thanks. Appreciate it.
1: Good seeing you again. You too. Finally,
0: in 2020, I spoke to George Pelicanos, who co-produced The Wire before joining Simon to create The Deuce and We Own This City.
2: George Pelicanos.
0: You have partly behind one of the, arguably the greatest show of all time, and season two, I think, always gets the short strap. Everyone always holds up, you know, season one and three and four, and I love season two. So, yeah, I mean, George, is it is it wild? You know, you, you watch, uh, you know, Lovecraft Country, and you see Omar coming. You watch Concrete Cowboys coming out, and you see Idris. You watch... Black Panther, and you're like, oh, that's the answer to Where's Wallace? You know, you you see all yeah. you see all these people going on, and they're massive now.
2: Yeah. Oh, I'm super happy for them. You know, they're all great people. And then I just saw that Wendell got Wendell Pierce got cast as. Uh, B.B. King, he's going to be playing B.B. King perfect, you know, and and Wendell is just a great guy.
0: Yeah, and then you see Clay Davis is in The Five Bloods, it's like every acclaimed movie, gosh, Game of Thrones, Littlefinger was the mayor. That's nice, you have that whole stable of actors that you can, you know, that whole ensemble you can tap for future films. Tell our, you know, maybe there's some other aspiring listeners listening to this, they've shot their film, Uh, you know, how'd you get distribution?
2: I do want to say, don't get discouraged, because, you know, everybody wants to get into Sundance, everybody wants to get into Toronto, all that stuff And and chances are you're not going to get in. It's a very political process. It's about connections. And, um, you know, if you can get a movie star to play the role, even in a low-budget film, they'll let you in to those festivals because they want the movie star to come to the festival to give them more press. Um, Make a good film. That's my advice. You know, there's ways to do it, but just don't get discouraged because you don't get into the biggest one. It doesn't mean that your film doesn't have worth.
0: You're right. The analogy I always liken it to is, you know, you could you could have made the best film in the world, but it's the festivals. It's like everyone, a bunch of people shooting basketballs all up the same hoop. You know, they're not <laughs> going to get in. So it, I think it's kind of cool that the streaming world, you can bypass a lot of that and get just get it straight to the audience. So that's great. Um, I rank like the best 30 movies in 30 genres in August. I'm going to narrow it down <laughs> to one. I've always loved uh, Vertigo. I think there's so much going on in Vertigo. But, you know, The Godfather and then, you know, It's a Wonderful Life and Field of Dreams that kind of stuff always touches my I have a magical realism so those kind of movies in groundhog day those kind of kind of speak to my soul a little bit but for filmmaking skill like man like coppola and hitchcock and god yeah those those are
2: my gems i think the wild bunch
0: you know um mike srago who used to write he was yeah. the critic for uh, the baltimore sun i used to intern up with him that was his favorite movie
2: yeah i think there's a there's a book called the westerns the westerns of sam peckinpah where they devote a hundred pages to that film and when you read those 100 pages, you'll realize why. That, that film is one of the great works of art of the 20th century. And and it, and it actually changed my life because I, I saw it with my dad in the theater first run. And when I walked out of there, I was like, that's what I want to do. You know what I mean? I was a little kid.
0: Wow, you got to see it in the theater? I'm so jealous. I really, I really wish I could transport myself back in time and see a lot of those in the theater the first time, you know, ride the high country is good too, but uh wild bunch is on another level. The way that whole, the way it like intercuts, I, I always think of that opening where the guy's on the horse and he like goes through the, the window, window and you know yeah. what I mean? And what they like show it three different times.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They shot a lot of film on that, on that uh, when they, 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 I think it, I think when that movie was done, it was, it had the record for the most amount of film shot on any, on any movie ever at that time
0: i wouldn't doubt it and william holden and borg nine just they're just they're awesome i could talk about that all day (laughs) thanks so much for joining us on beyond the fame with jason fraley remember to hit the subscribe button and give us a five-star rating if you like what you hear we'll see you next time